What would God say to Albo? He's been uh, Prime Minister now for less than a week, and what a week it's been. He'd been in the job just a couple of hours before he was whisked away on an RAAF VIP jet to Tokyo to meet with President Biden. That's not a bad first day on the job. And for a kid who grew up in public housing, he's now returning to public housing, but to the lodge. So much has happened in such a short amount of time. And as he prepares for the future, what would God say to Albo? Well, if Albo was to grab a Bible, then the chapter I'd get him to turn to first may well be Daniel chapter 4. Because in this chapter, we have a memoir of a very famous and powerful world leader. And it charts his rise and then his fall and then his rise again. And along the way, it offers some of the most important advice that any leader could possibly hear. But it's not just for world leaders. It's also for everyday people like you and like me, because it shows the way that we should all see ourselves in God's world. It shows us our proper place in God's world. It's a strange chapter. It's a strange chapter because it's written in the first person. I this, I that, I this, I that. And it's not written by one of the Jews from Jerusalem. It's actually written by the pagan king who smashed up Jerusalem and who killed many of her inhabitants and then took captive her upcoming leaders. He's the guy who's going to speak to us today from the pages of the Bible, which is a bit unusual, don't you think? But in doing so, as we hear his words, we are hearing God's words, and we'll be hearing about who rules, really. And it starts like this. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar said this, sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. Who does he speak this to? Everyone. He speaks to every person on the planet. It's like a tweet from Elon Musk. 95 million followers on Twitter. But then it's reported in the mainstream media to many, many million more. The king wants to give this message to every race, every nation, every language. It's a, it's a sort of the most close you could get to a global broadcast. If you could get a broadcast out to every single person, if Elon Musk said, hey, here's my login, tweet away, what would you tweet? What would you say? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the 6th century BC said, peace and prosperity to you. That's how he kicks it off. It, it shows what is important to him. Peace, prosperity, wealth, and the peace to be able to enjoy it, not to be at for, fighting at war all the time. But after that greeting, he gets to the heart of his message. He says in verse 2, I want you to all know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. He wants everyone to know what it is that God has done for him. In other words, the king is sharing his personal testimony. He's telling everybody his own journey with God, the Most High God. Now, he doesn't refer to him by the special name of the Lord that we're used to, but he does recognise him as the Most High, the Supreme, the top dog, the Supreme God. And he speaks about, in particular, God's signs and wonders. 
Uh, signs and wonders, that is a, quite a significant phrase throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. God usually does signs and wonders at specific times and special times throughout history. Uh, I did a little search on that phrase, signs and wonders, and every single time the Old Testament talks about signs and wonders, it refers to the Exodus. Except once in Daniel chapter 4, and then once in Daniel chapter 6, where it uses this phrase, signs and wonders. The king sees what has happened to him and to the situation around him as being in that kind of league. So he really makes a big thing of it. And with this, he says even more, verse 3, he says, How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. Uh, this king says that the signs are great and the wonders are powerful and he speaks of the kingdom of God as lasting forever and ruling through all generations. I wonder how many world leaders would tweet something like that. I mean, Barack Obama still has the most followers on Twitter. I think 133 million or something like that. Do you reckon he's going to be tweeting something like this? What about in their victory speech? What would they say? Imagine if Albo said this. And I'm using Albo because he says, call me Albo. Okay, I know his, his formal title, but I'm going to call him Albo. What if he said on Saturday night last week, I say to my fellow Australians, thank you for this extraordinary honour. I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. And first of all, I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the, Lord Most High, the, work the Most High God has performed. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. Hey, he said some of that, the first bit, but not so much the second bit. But who else would? What leaders actually would say that as they had the adrenaline and the excitement of realising that they got first past the post? But of all people, would you imagine King Nebuchadnezzar to say it? What would bring about this remarkable change in him? Well, let's hear from the king, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. Things are good. He's living the good life. Life is very, very good. Very, very good for the king. He's living his best life right now. But things are about to change. Verse 5, But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. Uh, th this guy has bad dreams, and lots of them, yeah? And like the one we read about earlier on in Daniel, it's really scared him. And he's acted in the same way as the last one. Verse 6, he issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. He figures that if he can work out what it means, then he'll be able to sleep well. The dream will no longer scare him because he'll know exactly what it's saying. And so, verse 7, it, we read that when all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. History repeats itself again. All those professional dream interpreters are as useless as a fly screen in a submarine. 
And so the king brings in the expert, verse 8. At last Daniel came in before me and I told him my dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. It's Daniel's turn, but did you see the way that he's described at that point? Interesting, isn't it? He's recognised as a guy who has the spirit of the holy gods, which isn't exactly a big vote for Old Testament monotheism, but, you know, let's give Nebuchadnezzar a bit of a chance at this stage. Anyway, what happens next? Verse 9. I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches and all the world was fed from this tree. Interesting, isn't it? He dreamed of an awesome tree. This is the greatest tree you could ever imagine. It's a strength of a picture of strength and power and fertility and protection and prosperity. It's not exactly the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the Garden of Eden, but it kind of triggers some of those ideas, doesn't it? But what's so scary about this tree? It sounds nice. It sounds like a nice dream. Well, verse 13. Then I, as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, Cut down the tree, lop off its branches, shake off its leaves, scatter its fruit, chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. It's pretty sad, isn't it? It's sad when you see huge, beautiful, old, majestic trees like that be cut down. That's exactly what's happened here. The tree is cut down and the animals scatter. Just kind of like the original Tower of Babel. All the animals are scattered. And the stump remains, still got its roots in the ground, but it's kind of got the equivalent of some giant handcuffs on it, binding it all up there. And then the dream stops talking about the it of the tree and starts talking about a him. 15b, now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. Who could the he be? We'll find out in a minute. But now a bit more about his life as an animal. Verse 16, we read that for seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. Whoever this him is now has the mind of a wild animal and it'll be the case for seven periods of time. And then after that, the dream ends and it shows the authority of the messenger. For this has been decreed, verse 17, by the messengers, it is commanded by the holy ones. But why was it said? Why did the messenger send that message? Verse 17b, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. 
The messenger makes this part of the dream's message very, very clear. It's a dream that shows who rules really. (laughs) And it's a dream that shows that what he chooses to do is his choice, even if it doesn't make sense to us. And that's the end of the dream. And verse 18, Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now if you hadn't already heard this story before, you'd be pretty confused, I reckon. Although the last bit does seem to be obvious about the authority and power of the Most High God. But the bits about the big tree being cut down and you know, the man becoming like an animal, and it's kind of scary stuff. You can see why he was losing sleep. Especially if the guy who ends up being the animal is actually the king himself, the guy who's having the dream. If that's the case, you can see why he wakes up in a pool of sweat. Well, now it's over to God's man, Daniel, to respond to the king's request for a dream interpretation. How's he going to go this time? Well, chapter 19, verse A, upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. Daniel gets scared as well. You can also almost imagine that, that, that the king is telling Daniel the dream and Daniel goes, oh, like that. You can sort of see he's overwhelmed by it. But, but the king says, tell me the truth. He says in 19b, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. But there's a reason that he's stressed. Because Daniel Belteshazzar replies, Oh, King, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. In other words, Daniel knows that the news is bad for the king. And, and, and Daniel hesitates to tell the bad news to the king. But the king says, you've got to give me the truth. Even if I'm not going to like it, I want you to tell it to me. It must be like when you're maybe a doctor and, 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 the, some, and the person comes in and says, so how do the test results go? And you look at them and go, <laughs> and you know that what you as a doctor are about to say to this person is going to change their life as they are given very bad news. And you think, I'd much rather say, <laughs> it's fine, <laughs> have a nice day. But you tell them the news and you say, cancer has riddled your body. There's nothing we can do. Get your affairs in order. Who wants to give that kind of news to somebody? But it's the only news that is the right news. And Daniel knows that his news is the right news, but it's the hard news. And here it is, verse 20. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. So who's, what's the king? What's the tree? It's, it's the king. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the start, it's looking really good. Looking amazing. He is strong. He is great. His rule extends over the whole earth. He is a true superpower. 
But then this happens, verse 23. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals on the field for seven periods of time. And that's the bit where the tree is cut down. And the he becomes like a wild animal. What does it mean? Well, verse 24 Daniel says, this is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord, the King. He's just about to tell him the answer, but before he does, he makes it very clear that the one who has the ultimate authority in the universe is not the King. The one who has the ultimate authority in the universe is the Most High. And here's what happens, verse 25. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. The great king of the world, he will lose the dignity of being a human, and he will now become like an animal. In fact, the great king will become subhuman. See that? But it's not going to be forever, verse 25b. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. The humiliation will happen for seven periods of time, which seems likely to be seven years. And that will be how long it will take for him to know that King Nebuchadnezzar is not the ultimate king of the universe. But the painful punishment is not permanent, verse 26. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. And this means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. You'll go back to that former glory and the king will be king again. But not before he realises that God rules really. And that's the end of the interpretation. And now having given the interpretation... Explain the test results, so to speak. He now gives him some advice. And he says to them, verse 27, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. What does Daniel do? He urges the king to repent. He wants him to stop sinning. He wants him to break from his wicked past and to become merciful to the poor. And it seems what Daniel is saying is, King, you do this. You make a complete turnaround in your life and then this tragic prophecy may be avoided. It really sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Just stop being a bad king. (laughs) Stop treating people badly. It's not rocket science. And Daniel has... This authority. And he has this credibility. I mean, clearly he's got runs on the board, doesn't he? I mean, he, he's the guy who's been able to successfully talk about the other dream and get it right. You'd think that the king would be smart enough to heed the warning. But verse 28. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. 
He didn't heed the warning. He knew what he needed to do, but he didn't do it. And so this happened, verse 29. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And he looked out across the city. He said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendour. The moral of this story is, if you're a king, stay off the roof of your palace. It's a dangerous spot. Not because you might fall off the roof. The risk is that you might feel invincible. You might feel proud. Because kings are at risk of that. Can you think of a time when a famous king walked out onto the roof of his palace? Everyone else was out at war. He thought he was so powerful and invincible that he could even take someone else's wife and sleep with her and get away with it. It's King David, wasn't it? With Bathsheba. From that very moment, he was brought very low, crushingly low. And the same thing's about to happen now with the king in Babylon because he's on the high roof of his palace. He's looking over the whole city. And what does he do? He says, how good am I? Look at all this. If it wasn't for me, none of this would have happened. I'm the guy. I'm the majestic one. I'm the powerful one. I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one who rules really. Pride is a very dangerous thing. It's particularly dangerous when you or I take credit for things that God's done. It's very dangerous. You might think that you're financially independent because of your training or your experience or your skills or your business acumen. And you click on the right things in your web browser and you, you see your share portfolio. And you say, ah. And you look at your bank account. And then you, someone decides to tell you how much your house is worth. And you think, whoa, seven figures. I'm a millionaire. And you think, look at me. Look at my wealth. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. God gave you that. Who are you to take credit for it? That's pretty stupid. And then you think, oh, it's time for me to get a bit of a checkup at the doctors. So you go along to the doctors. If you're, if you're my age, you have them a bit more often and they say, oh, we might just send off some tests. And you get the tests back and they say, oh, that's not too bad. And you think, oh, pretty good, aren't I? It isn't it good that I don't have those complications because, you know, I just, just totally because of my good looking after myself that I don't have any of those weird complications that all those other people have. And you say, look at me, I'm a, I'm a health hero. Look at this. You say, you idiot. It's not because of you being smart with what you eat that you can take credit for your health. All those people who smoke two packets a day and eat five meals of KFC and they live to 90, you're thinking, you know... Or those who are gym junkies and they eat everything perfect 
and yet then at 55 die of a 52 die of a heart attack. Your health, you think you can take credit for that? So what do we do? When you're praised, reflect it to God. Because then not only will you and I be acting wisely, saying the truth, you actually get a chance to tell others about the glory of your true and living God. Oh, congratulations on your new achievement. You must be so proud of yourself. Anyone ever said that to you? What do you say? Yeah, I'm pretty good, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Wrong answer. You, you say, well, thank you for your kind words, but it's all because of Jesus. He's in control. I say, oh, you're all being kind of religious and world. Where, where did that come from? It's like, well, I'm just telling you it's the truth. Let's see where it goes from there. If only King Nebuchadnezzar had done that, had gone up there on the roof of his palace and looked and said, how good is Babylon? How good is God? I'm just this monkey who's up here just trying to you know, not be an idiot when being a king, and he's the one who's worked through this. I've made plenty of mistakes, but wow, God, look at Babylon. Look how good you are. Then he wouldn't be out. Well, this wouldn't happen. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass, a grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and he gives them to anyone he chooses. So it happens. Who rules really? It's God. He's the one who makes kings and breaks kings. God puts presidents and princes and PMs and premiers in power and they are fools to ignore it. But the greatest fool in all of this was Nebuchadnezzar. Because he was warned by God. God gave him the dream. I don't know, Putin's sort of rolling around in bed thinking, hey, give out these big dreams about big trees. But Nebuchadnezzar, right? He got warned and he ignored it. And so verse 33, that same hour the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, he was drenched with the dew of heaven, he lived this way until his hair was as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. The king was forced to become like an animal. And how the mighty have fallen. What painful humiliation. But it wasn't forever. Verse 34, after this time had passed... I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honoured the one who lives forever. He woke up to himself. He did what every ruler should do. He acknowledged the true ruler, the Most High God. And he, and he says a little song, a little song of praise. Verse 34, his rule is everlasting. 
His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? In other words, the sovereign king of Babylon recognises the sovereign ruler of God. He is incomparable. Nothing compares to him. He is independent. He makes his decisions by himself and he's not accountable to others for them. And that's because he rules everything. It's a pretty humbling thing for a powerful earthly ruler to say this. Although it's probably easy for Nebuchadnezzar because he'd been brought very, very low. He, he hit rock bottom. And when he hit rock bottom, he recognised God's rule. Not everybody reacts that way when they hit rock bottom. Not everybody reacts that way when their world comes tumbling down. Some will recognise the sovereignty of God and they will shake their fists at anger with him. They know that he exists. They know he's in control of everything. But they hate him for what he's done. But others will recognise the sovereignty of God. And they will trust him. Even when it really, really hurts. They realise that God is big. And they are small. And the most stable place in our suffering is on our knees. Now, I don't know what hard times you've been through. I know some of your hard times because you've shared them with me. But I'm sure there's more. Some of them are in the past. And for some of them, they're right now. Right now you're going through extraordinary suffering. And you will be tempted to think that the hard times show that God is chaotic or careless. But in your suffering, God calls you and me to trust him. He's sovereign. He's in control. And nothing takes him by surprise. And in all that, he loves us enough to send his son to die for us. Suffering is something that God knows better than anyone. For he suffered the loss of his one and only son. And he did that for you and me in our suffering. So that we might have the hope of the new creation, which is free of sin and free of suffering. Well, as Nebuchadnezzar recognised the true and living God, things were restored. And so verse 36, we read that when my sanity returned to me, so did my honour and glory and kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honour than before. Things are restored and it's even better than before. As a king who recognised the authority of the true king, he's now got greater honour than ever before. And in the final verse for today, we see the heart of what it is 
that the king needed to believe. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honour the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. What did he come to believe about God? Well, he recognised the truth and the goodness of God's acts. He recognised that God acts to humble the proud, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had become. Is that what you think about God? Do you believe that his acts are just and true? And do you humbly submit to his loving rule? They were hard, hard earned lessons for King Nebuchadnezzar. But he was very blessed because most kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers don't get that special word in that special way. And they don't get that special blessing which for Nebuchadnezzar was what we would call a curse. But that painful humiliation was a blessing that led him to his epiphany. It was only by hitting rock bottom that he could look up and he could see the truth of who rules really. So what would God say to our new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese? What would he say to the man who's been given authority to lead Australia's federal government? God would say to Albo what he communicated to Nebuchadnezzar. He'd tell Albo to recognise that Jesus is king over heaven and earth and that all of God's acts are just and true and that if he's wise, he will humbly serve Jesus. And I think that's what we should be praying for our new Prime Minister. Amen.